You know, as I was thinking about the message for today, the miraculous, expressive, impressive. You know, God never does anything to be impressive. Because God in his character alone is impressive. God in his immutability is impressive. God in his sovereignty is impressive. But God does everything in a miraculous way, and as a result of it, it's really impressive. But as I was thinking about it, a story came to mind. And I want to read it. It was called, it's called the dog errand. And those of you who have pets would probably uh, identify. Uh, you probably got some smart animals. But this is how it goes. It says a butcher was working and really busy. He noticed a dog in his shop and shoes him away. Later, he notices the dog came back again. He walks over to the dog and notices the dog has a note in his mouth. The butcher takes the note and reads it. Can I have 12 sausages and a leg of lamb, please? Butcher looks and lo and behold, in the dog's mouth, there was a $10 bill. So the butcher takes the money and puts the, the sausage and lamb in a bag and places it in the dog's mouth. The butcher was very impressed. And since it was closing time, he decides to close up shop and follow the dog. So off he goes. The dog is walking down the street and comes to a crossing. The dog puts down the bag, jumps up and presses the crossing button. Then he waits patiently, bag in mouth, for the light to change. It does. And he walks across the road with the butcher following. The dog then comes to a bus stop and starts looking at the timetable. I thought the same thing. The butcher is in awe at this stage. The dog checks on the times, checks out the times, and sits on one of the seats to wait for the bus. Along comes the bus. The dog goes and looks at the number, notices it's the right bus, and climbs on. The butcher, now with mouth, open mouth, follows him onto the bus. The bus travels along the town, travels through town, and out to the suburbs. Eventually, the dog gets up, moves to the front of the bus, and standing on his hind legs, pushes the button to stop the bus. The dog gets off, grocery still in mouth, and the butcher still following. They walk down the road, and the dog approaches a house. He walks up the path, drops the groceries on the step, then he walks down the path and puts down the path, takes a big run and throws himself whack against the door. Goes back down the path, takes another run, throws himself again, whack against the door. There's no answer at the door. So the dog goes back down the path, jumps up on a narrow wall, walks along the perimeter of the garden. He gets to a window and he bangs his head against it several times. He walks back, jumps off the wall and waits at the door. The butcher watches as a big guy opens the door and starts laying into the dog, really yelling at him. The butcher runs up and says, stops the guy. Says, what on earth are you doing? This dog is a genius. He could be on TV for goodness sake. To which the big guy responds, clever my foot. This is the second time this week he forgot his key. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Miraculous, impressive, right? 
That's exactly what I was thinking when I read that. Not only is the story of Zachariah, Elizabeth, and John timeless, it's also fundamental and historically foundational to our faith. Why? Because it reflects God's real divine involvement into the flesh and blood affairs of people just like you and me. God planned and designed every single detail of John's life so that when John came into the world, there would be no coincidences as well as no surprises. He carried out his plan in such a way that it was very impressive. The miraculous, and mir the miraculous way he carried out his plan proved to be impressive because that's the way the miraculous works. Whatever was connected to or connected with or referred to the incarnation must be impressive. God never sets out to be impressive, but that's the way it works out. The impressive nature of what God does is a byproduct of the miraculous way that he works in and through the lives of those who trust him and put their faith in him. And so this unchangeable God relates to us in the same way today through our mindsets and our character as we'll see as we look at the mindset and character of Elizabeth and Zachariah. God works the same way today. And he's perhaps working in your life at this very moment to conform your character and your mindset so that at the end of the line, you will prove to be a vehicle that God will be able to work through in an impressive way and accomplish things for his glory. He determines what, how, how we respond to God when he works in our lives determines whether or not he is able to do the miraculous impressive and impact our lives as a result of the, the incarnation in our lives. But we see several aspects as we look at Luke's Gospel chapter 1. There are several aspects uh, that we see with regards to Zechariah and John. One of the things that we see is God's revelation of his plan to direct the affairs of humanity and restore them in a relationship to him. And so Luke begins with the spiritual heritage of Jesus' forerunner, John's parents. Look at verse 5. Well, first of all, John talks about the validity of what he's going to say. And he talks, uh, he's not just a physician, but John is also a historian. And so in verse 1 he says, Inasmuch as many of you have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you with in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. And so he's given us an account in consecutive order. And this is what he says about John's parents. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, and this is the same Herod the Great, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abia, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
Zacharias means Yahweh remembers. Interesting name for the man who is about to go through a miraculous, impressive event. But he was not the chief priest or the high priest. He was a priest of the division of Abia. And this division of Abia was the eighth division. There were 24 divisions altogether. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, when the priests began to increase in number, David made a decision that he would divide the priests up into 24 divisions. And so, Zechariah was in the 8th division of these priests. And the priests, these, these families were divided up into families of between 4 to 9, and there were about 1,000 priests per division. And so these families were responsible for carrying out the daily services in the temple. And those duties were numerous. And this service went on for two weeks out of a year. But we also see not only was, was Zachariah of a high and holy standing, but his wife was as well. Luke tells us that she was of the lineage of Aaron which was also an honored priestly line. And so here we see God choosing this priestly couple as a part of his divine plan to restore the human race to a relationship with him. And God is very selective in who he chooses. Whom God chooses, men would not necessarily choose, as we will see. As we move on. But as we look at this couple, we also are challenged to face the drama of the disappointment in the lives of this couple. Notice how Luke describes them. Verse 6. Now they were both righteous. In other words, they were, they were upright and holy people. They had a holy character. They had a moral character. They had a, an upright, upstanding character. They knew that God examined everything that they did in their lives. And they were both faithful in their obedience to his word. But they were not just righteous before men. You see, many people pretend to be righteous, and some of them are righteous, genuinely. But only for men, only for show. This couple was not just righteous because of what they wanted people to say about them. But notice what, what Luke says. They were righteous in the sight of God. In other words, what really mattered to them is how God saw them, not how men saw them. And that's important to note. Because as we'll see, people really didn't think very much of this couple because of the situation that they were in. Not before men, but in the sight or before God. They were always conscious of God's all-seeing eye or God's omniscience. They were always conscious that God was watching them and God was a part of their lives in every single thing that they did. They knew that God knew about all of their behavior. He saw everything that they did. And so he describes them as righteous and then he describes how they are righteous. They are righteous in the sight of God by all that they do. And then he says, they did this, this tremendous work of living a righteous life by walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. In other words, their outward compliance 
came from their inward obedience. And that's the only way it works. However we respond outwardly ought to come from inside of us. When we are complying with the will and the word of God based on the guided by the direction of God the Holy Spirit. And that is what we see in, these, in the lives of this couple. And so as a result, no one could accuse them of anything. Because they were righteous before God, they were also automatically righteous before men. They were exemplary and conscientious in their spiritual walk in every area of their lives, as well as in, their, in other areas of their lives as well. And so this was really a sacred peer that God had chosen to do a work for him. And they made it their duty to God, to their neighbor, and to themselves to walk hand in hand with God. And so we see that this, there is no doubt whatsoever that this is a righteous couple by every standards of the imagination from God's perspective. A couple who lived for God in word, in thought, and in deed. Now we want us to see the life and the character of this couple because that's what God works through. He works through the mindset and the character of his people. And so they demonstrated a real love for God and a sincere compliance to his laws. So you may ask, well, if they had all of that, what more could they ask for? What more could they want? The Bible tells us that godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. So they had tremendous gain. What, was, what, what more could they want? How about a child? In verse 7, Luke says, but. Don't you just hate that word, but, sometimes? It just, it just messes things up sometimes, right? It was a great service, but. The air condition wasn't working right. He was a good boy, but. He got him in the wrong company. She was a good girl. Until that friend messes up her life. There is always a but that brings a negative connotation sometimes. And sometimes it's a positive connotation that goes with it. But that but seems to mess up things sometimes. And, and, and such we see in the life of this, this righteous, this godly couple. But, Luke says, they had no child. No children. Is it because they wanted to dedicate or commit themselves to the service of the Lord? Or they didn't want to be encumbered with children? To be able to fully understand the ramifications of this statement, we need to understand Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, no prospect was more gloomy to the Jew than dying childless. It was a horror for the Jew not to have children. That they would describe as that their name should perish. And so they went to great pains to ensure that the law made provisions so that if a, if, if a, brother, if a man dies, his brother can marry his wife and have children to carry on the family name. And this is how vital, how important it was for the Jews to have children. And Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells us how that happens as far as, far as the, the provisions in the law is concerned. 
And so the birth, uh, the birth of children was considered by the Jews to be a blessing from God because of the life that a person was living before God. In fact, Adam, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And he even told the animals, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And, and the psalmist David also talks about being fruitful. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will, will, will live like olive plants around your table. And the Bible tells us that its children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. You know, when we had three kids, and people would ask me how many children we had, I used to tell them, we got three, and they said, what are their names? I used to say, no, mo, no, mo, and still mo. <laughs> or, or mo, still mo, and no mo. But guess what? I can't say that, no mo. <laughs> Blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. But why couldn't Elizabeth have children? Because she was barren, Luke says. She was barren. Her inability to have children was not just a great misfortune, but it also carried with it a stigma. And this is why we mentioned that they had to be seen as righteous before God and not before men. The stigma that Elizabeth had was that anyone, any woman who was barren, who, would, who was unable to have children, was considered to be in a state of being punished by God. That's how the Jews saw it. A barren woman was being punished by God for sin in her life. And so when these people looked at Elizabeth and her husband, they saw them as sinful people. They'd done something wrong in their lives and God is punishing them. That's why she's unable to bear children. But Elizabeth was not as a disgrace as the Jewish people saw women who did not have children. Even though, uh, according to verse 25... Uh, she sees herself as a disgrace. Notice verse 25. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So in that culture, she was considered a disgrace. It was a state that all women, Jewish women, were seen in who could not bear children as a result of infertility. But you know what? In God's grand scheme of things, Elizabeth was not a disgrace. In fact, she was among good company. The likes of Rebecca and Rachel and Sarah and Hannah. These are the people that Elizabeth were in good company. All of whom God delivered from their disgrace of infertility. And as a result, they were able to bring men into the world who were exceptional spiritual leaders. See how God works? Through the miraculous, God does the impressive. And he's willing to do it in your life and mine if we let him. As Elizabeth and Zechariah were about to do. And so there's no doubt that this righteous couple prayed often for a son. That was probably the first item on their prayer request when they went before the Lord. Lord, you promise you're going to give us a son. When is he coming? Lord, we're getting old, you know. They don't have in vitro. You need to work fast. And this was probably their prayer request every time they went before the Lord. Luke also says something else about them. He says they were advanced in years. Now we know what that means, right? 
there were no longer spring chickens. Time was running out. The clock was ticking. Talk about adding insult to injury. Notice what this righteous couple was up against. No child, infertility, and old age. Now we know in our world, in the game of life, three strikes and you what? You're out. Right. Three strikes and you're out of the game. But for this righteous couple, this childless righteous couple, their long-term void of pain and disappointment was all a part of God's sovereign plan. God planned it that way. That was not a coincidence. It just didn't happen. It was a part of God's plan. God steps into the game in the last innings of the game. And he changes the direction of their disappointments. Who says God doesn't have a flair for the dramatics? God works, as we often say, in mysterious ways. This righteous couple's three strikes draws attention to the miraculous, impressive nature of the events that was about to take place in their lives. Why? Because whatever is connected with or referred to the incarnation must be miraculous and impressive. Notice God's timing. Verse 8. The King James renders it, and it came to pass. Now, if a Bahamian woman was saying this, it would sound something like this. Child, it just so happened. That's if a Bahamian woman was saying that instead of Luke, right? But it was happening. It was about to happen. And it happened. The miraculous, impressive events surrounding John's birth started while Zechariah was doing his priestly duty on the job in the temple. Luke 9 says, look at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot. That's interesting, isn't it? To enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. There were about 20,000 priests altogether. And so it was impossible for all of them to get turns serving in the temple. So it meant that a priest could serve only once in his lifetime. And it just so happened that the lot fell on Zechariah. What are the odds of something like that happening? Only God could do it. God orchestrated that the lot would fall on Zechariah. And of course we know that casting lots is not new. In the Old Testament, it was, determined, it was used to determine the will of God uh, on the lives of people. In the New Testament, it was also used to uh, determine uh, that a person's inheritance was assigned by God. And so lots, the casting of lots is not new. And so God uses that human form, that human method, to carry out his master plan in a dramatic way. And so in his goodness, in his loving kindness, in his mercifulness, God chooses an important moment in the career of Zechariah to make his divine move. And the setting was one of two times. It was the, the two times of the perpetual offering. It was either 9 a.m. in the morning or 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And God chose that particular time. At this lofty moment, God begins to do his work afresh. Uh, to redeem humanity. And revealing to the world the forerunner of the one who would take 
away the sin of the world. But notice how perfectly and appropriately his timing is. It happened at a time when Zachariah's division was up, for the, up to the plate. It happened during the time of worship. It happened at a time when people were, were, were challenged to recognize their need for cleansing from sin. And so God's timing was perfect. Isn't it always? God, we often say that God is never late. He's always on time. And so God's timing here was perfect. Never mind the disappointment and the pain and the hardship that this couple went through. God's timing was absolutely perfect. Verse 10. And the whole, and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the offering. Throughout scripture, incense indicated the prayer of God's people. It was a symbol of prayer of God's people. Even David uh, used that reference. He says, may you accept my prayer like incense. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 8 and verse 3, we read a large amount of incense was given to him to offer up the prayers of the saints on the golden altar that was before the throne. Look at verse 11. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense. Now this angel was not the Lord, he was an angel. In other words, he was a holy messenger of God. Many times the scripture talks about the angel of the Lord, and it's often a reference to the Lord Jesus. But in this case it's not. It's a reference to just a holy messenger whom God sent to perform a specific duty. But notice where he appeared. He didn't appear at the left of the altar. He didn't appear in the front of the altar. He didn't appear, he didn't appear as we would say, way over so. He didn't appear at the back of the altar. He appeared, the Bible says, at the right of the altar. And that is unique. That is significant. Because when we read scripture, we would find that whenever God was speaking about a place of favor and blessing, it was always the right. And so that was a cue for Zechariah to realize that he really didn't have nothing to be fearful about. Even though whenever angelic beings showed up, people were fearful. But that was Zechariah's cue that you don't have to be afraid. Just by the matter of fact of where I show up, that tells you something good is going to happen. God was about to bless him. He showed up at the right. Verse 12. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. In fact, this angel showed up so suddenly and unexpectedly. Now he's gone into the temple to do his duty. To offer the incense in the altar. He's expected to do that and then walk back out and communicate with the people. But then something else happened that wasn't planned. All of a sudden, this alien from outer space shows up. Not only was he an alien from outer space, but he was an alien from outer space that hung out with the Almighty God. That's fearful. Frightening. And that's why Luke says fear gripped him. His knees were probably knocking together. He was probably trembling and his eyes were probably bulging out of his head when he sees this individual. But you notice, angels don't waste words. 
What is the first thing the angel says to him? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Angels don't say anything that they don't have to say. And at this particular point, he had to say to him, don't be afraid, because he saw the state the man was in. He was an old man. Good thing he didn't have a heart attack or something. But the angel recognized the state of Zechariah and how fearful this event had an impact in, on his life. And so he says to him, do not be afraid or fear not. In other words, he says, calm down. Calm down, Zach. I've got some great news for you, man. You've been praying for a long time. Remember that prayer request that you've been praying about? Yeah, the one for a son. Well, guess what? God has answered your prayer. God has decided to give you a son, Zachariah. Could you believe that? No, Zachariah. No, 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 no. It doesn't mean that you're going to get a new wife. Forget it. No, God's not going to give you a new wife, Zach. The same wife you have, Elizabeth. Not the angel that says. He says, your wife, Elizabeth. Because, you know, Zachariah might be thinking, you know, he's already said that they're too old. So he's thinking, you know, probably God's going to give me a, a young wife who can bear children. And the angel made it very clear. Zachariah is, no, you're not, not going to get a new wife. Your wife, Elizabeth. Yeah, the barren one. The one who's... Who's, who's got infertility problems. God is going to make her pregnant. Believe it or not, God can do that. He's going to make her pregnant, Zach. And then he says to Zach, now Zach, I want you to remember something. And don't you ever forget this. I know how, how you fathers can get when you have sons. You don't get too excited when the girls come. But you get really beside yourself when the boys come. Zach, when that boy comes, do not name him Zach Jr. God wants you to name him John. Why? Because it means God is gracious. And Zach, that's exactly what God has been to you. Making you, making you, uh, giving you the, 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 the joy of having a son in your old age. God has been gracious to you. Name the boy John and not Zach Jr. And so Zach, Zachariah stands there and he's trying to take all of this in. But the angel says something else to him. Verse 14. The angel says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. In other words, Zach, you're going to be so overjoyed. You're going to be ecstatic. In fact, when they look up the word static in the dictionary, your pitch is going to be next to it. You're going to be so excited. You're going to be so glad. But not only you. A lot of other people are going to be excited too because this is a prophecy fulfilled. This is something that people are looking forward to. You're going to be excited. And then he says something else to Zechariah. Verse 15. Now he goes into the career of what John is going to be like. Because, you know, fathers, sometimes they get carried away and they try to do all kinds of things with their children and, and try to make the children into what they couldn't be themselves. You know how that is, right? They wanted to be a, this and they couldn't be this, so they try to orchestrate their children's lives so that they can be that. Well, they did it back then too. And so the angel was very specific. He says, for he will be great. Notice, not in the sight of men. 
Because you see, a lot of people saw John as a wacko. The guy walked around in dreary clothes and out of, out of style clothes, eating locusts and wild honey and, and shouting some things to people that they couldn't understand. He was really weird. And that's how people saw him. And so the angel is giving Zacharias advance notice. He says, I want you to understand that regardless of what people say, don't pay any attention to him. This son is going to be great. He's going to be great, maybe not in the sight of men, but he's going to be great in the sight of God. And I want you to remember that, Zachariah. So I don't want you to try to change the boy's life when he starts acting the way he's going to act. Because God, he's great in God's sight. That's the way God orchestrated his life. God planned the details of his life from beginning to end. And he says he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He will not drink no wine or liquor. In other words, don't let nobody talk him into drinking alcohol, talking about it, could put hair on his chest or something like that. No. He's not going to drink no wine. He's not going to drink no liquor. And guess what, Zechariah? Boy, and this was really the clincher. He says he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's born. Boy, now that's a clincher, isn't it? Notice what he says. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. When last time you saw that happen? In fact, the Bible tells us that he, 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 he was jumping for joy in Elizabeth's womb when she heard about Jesus, when he heard about Jesus and what he would do in connection to the incarnation. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A prophet like Elijah. Elijah was the greatest prophet that God ever had. And the angel says he's going to be just like Elijah. In the spirit of Elijah, Elijah had great zeal for the Lord. He had a tremendous passion and devotion for God which prompted him to do all that he did. And the, the angel said, John is going to be just like Zechariah. Now, how did, how did Zechariah take this news? How do you think he took the news? What do you think his response was? He stands there and he hears all of this. He's too old to have children. The Lord tells him he's going to have a son. Elizabeth is all barren and she can't do anything. What is he thinking? Well, look at his response. Verse 18. Zachariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in age. In other words, you really expect me to believe all this? You got to be kidding. If this is supposed to be funny, I ain't laughing. Listen, I am an old man. You don't play jokes on old people like this. I'm an old man with a capital O. You know, a lady was in the office one time. Two ladies were in the office, the doctor's office, waiting for an appointment. There's this little girl in the office. And the little girl was, well, they felt that the little girl was ugly. They talked about a freckled face and a, and a big eyeglasses, thick eyeglasses and all that stuff. And, and so these two old women decided to have some fun. And this little girl was sitting there. She's probably about seven or eight years old. And one lady said to, her, to the other lady, hmm... 
She's pretty U-G-L-Y, isn't she? And the little girl looked at them and says, I'm very S-M-A-R-T. Zachariah says, I'm an old man with a capital O. My wife is an old woman. You need to understand that I get up and go, got up and went a long time ago. This isn't going to work. You expect for me to believe this? Don't play games with me, alien. Now, how the angel responded? He must have been a Bahamian. Ever see two boys playing marbles? And one thinks, thinks the other one cheated on him? I say, just for that, I can take my marbles and go home. Look what the angel says, verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. Not only must have been a Bahamian, he must have been a politician. Or a celebrity. Ever, ever see a, le- a celebrity or a politician go somewhere and they get treated like the normal people? What is their response? Don't you know who I am? You're supposed to know. When I was working at the bank, I was a teller. And this, he must I guess you could call him a Bahamian celebrity. He came into the bank one day to cash a check. I did not know the man. Lord knows, I didn't know him. I had heard about him. I've heard his name. I'd heard him singing his songs on the radio. His daughter worked in the bank with me. But I'd never seen the man, didn't know what he looked like from Adam. And lo and behold, he shows up at my wicket. Cashes a check. So I says, okay, sir, can I see your identification? I who? I dead the who? Don't you know who I am? And he pulled a scene. Everybody, this is a big bank. Hundred and some people work in the bank. Everybody, he's got everybody's attention. And I'm standing there. What have I done? And he's shouting, he's carrying on real bad. I did, don't you know who I am? And so the teller next to me, he knew him. He says, that's okay. That's okay. So, and he signed his check and says, you know, I know him. But this is, this, is what, this is what Gabriel is saying. Look what Gabriel says. Don't you know who I am? I am Gabe, man. I'm Gabriel. I hang out in the presence of Almighty God. Who do you think you are asking me who I am? Sounds like a politician, eh? But it sounds like a little boy, too. Just for that? You could be dumb. Sounds like two little boys playing marbles, right? Notice what he says. Behold, oh, oh, verse 10, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to give you or to bring you good news. In other words, I'm, I'm the almighty game. You know, I've been around for a long time. God uses me for special assignments. And I've come here with the special assignment to give you good news. And this is the thanks I get? Man, you're ungrateful. That's kind of the attitude behind Gabriel's statement here. And behold, verse 20. Angel said, just for that, you can be dumb. Behold, you shall be silent. And unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Because you refuse to believe my words. I'm going to see there that you won't say another word. Until what I said comes to pass. And so Zachariah goes back. And now notice what happens. Because of his doubt. 
it, it, it impacted or it put at risk his service for God. Look at verse 21. And the people waiting for Zacharias were wondering at his delay in the temple. In other words, he took longer than he should have taken. And they wondered, what happened to him? Boy, I hope he just didn't do something out of the way. I saw hope his underwear was clean because if it wasn't, God help him. You know, these priests had to be upright. Everything had to be perfect as far as God is concerned. And so they're wondering, what happened to him? People were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering, what, what happens with the delay in the temple? But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Ever knew anybody who learned sign language that quick? He learned it real quick. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And so he put his service at risk for God simply by because of his momentary doubt. God told Zechariah that he would have a son, and John, a son John, and he would be connected to God incarnate. But he responded with doubt by underestimating God, the ability of God to do the exceedingly abundantly above that God says he's capable of doing. And sometimes misunderstanding God is as dangerous as rebelling against God. We need to remember that, especially when God wants to do the miraculous and impressive in our lives as he wanted to do with Zachariah. Whether there, whether there is the pain of disappointment, what, regardless of what it is, it may be the loss of a loved one by premature death, it may be a financial collapse, Maybe coping with a child who is backslidden or uh, fallen into some calamity. It may have been an unfortunate accident. Hard times are not always self-explanatory, as we see in the life of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Especially when we remember that God never, ever guarantees his redeemed a life without pain and disappointment. Never. Read the scriptures and you'll find that God never promises that none of us will have a life without pain or a life without disappointment. The question is, how do we handle it? How do we handle such a life? It would be easy to just be bitter, wouldn't it? That's normally the response. Imagine Zachariah and Elizabeth, faithful serving God. A man got sick, a preacher one time got sick uh, with cancer been valiantly serving the Lord all the years of his life and he got sick and his first response was how could God do this for me to me after all I've done for God how could he let this happen to me and he became bitter and that's normally the response when pain and disappointment comes into the lives of individuals bitterness always yields the fruit of anger and frustration and when that happens, it just saps the joy of the Lord right out of our lives. And so bitterness is really a dangerous thing. Trust and dependence, however, will enable us to find fulfillment in ways that we never even imagined or never even considered before the, the disappointment happened. Sometimes roadblocks are, always, are not always dead ends. Like in the case of Zachariah and Elizabeth. The roadblock was not a disappointment, was not a dead end. 
It was another turn in the road, a fresh new turn that God had placed in the road for them. Sometimes we are deprived of something good in our lives without realizing that God has something better down the road for us. And such was the case with this couple as well. God challenged this couple to live for him. How can we learn from the lessons of Zachariah and Elizabeth? How can we learn? What can we learn? What are they teaching us about how we can how God can make access in our lives so that we too are able to do uh, the miraculous and impressive by just simply letting God work. Just letting go and letting God have his way. Well, from this righteous couple of the past, we can learn some things about living, walking with God and living in the future or in the present. One of the things we can learn from them is that while pain, while our pain may not be the inability to have a child we still face a multitude of things that bring disappointment and as long as long as we're in this world until Jesus comes and snatches us out of this world or until he comes and calls us individually be prepared to face pain and disappointment like Zachariah and Elizabeth did without bitterness and that's the next thing we learn our response like theirs does not have to be, not have to result in bitterness regardless of how much disgrace we may have to face. Sometimes we face disgrace and, and uh, we think that God has, has, has left us alone. He's abandoned us. Zachariah and Elizabeth didn't think that. They stuck it out. And they're telling us that that's what we can learn. That's what we can do. But they also teach us that good people who are upright and blameless still need, need to rely on God. Good people. These were righteous people. Luke makes that, makes that point clear up front. They still need to rely and depend on God even more. But he also teaches us sometimes the answers to pain and disappointment are not always as clear as we would like them to be. They're not always cut and dry. They teach us that lesson as well. They teach, they teach us that we must learn to assume that struggles is not the evidence of sin in our lives. That's the way the people saw them. Because you're barren, you're living in secret sin. Struggles is not always an indication of sin. Next point we learn from them is God occasionally instructs us through difficult times. When difficult times come, welcome them. What does James say? When you go through fiery trials, count it all sadness? Get bitter? Get upset? Get angry? Start blaming somebody? What does he say? Count it all joy. Because God is using those difficult times to shape and conform our lives and make us into the image of his son. It's the school, what we call, of hard knocks that God puts us through. But then we can also learn that our sin may not be just doing the obvious wrong, but being hesitant to trust God like Zachariah didn't do. He didn't do anything wrong. The Bible says he was upright, righteous, and upstanding. 
walking blamelessly. You know what his problem was? You know where he went wrong? He refused, he was hesitant to trust God, to take God at his word. The Bible says God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask, think, or even imagine. Zachariah didn't even think about that when God said through the angel, you're going to have a son. Why don't we just this season take these lessons? Take what Zachariah and Elizabeth has taught us this morning. Probably only remember one thing. But let's take it. Wrap it as a, see it as a gift from God this season that the Holy Spirit of God has impressed upon your heart and apply it to your life. Let this Christmas be a life-changing experience for you that you have learned something about trusting God to do the miraculous impressive in your life. Don't do it because you want to impress. Do it because, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, you want to be obedient. And you want your, your outward obedience to be the result of your inward compliance. Do it because of that. Don't do it because you want to impress anyone. Trust God to do the miraculous and impressive in and through you. And through it all, remember one thing from this righteous couple. They discovered that God's timing, though different from ours, is always infinitely wiser. God's timing is not only different from ours, but infinitely wiser. Let's take what God the Holy Spirit has most impressed upon our hearts today from the life of this righteous couple and receive it as a gift and say thank you Lord for showing me this flaw in my life that I could correct today for Jesus sake not for your sake or anybody else's but for Jesus sake can you do that? let's pray Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you have moved and worked in the lives of righteous individuals like Elizabeth and John and Zachariah and taught us some valuable lessons of how we can live for you in a way that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly in our lives and draw attention not to us, but draw attention to yourself. The event that you carried out in their lives didn't draw attention to them, but it made people aware of who you are. And Lord, that's the job of each and every single one of us who name the name of Jesus, who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that we would allow you to have access to our lives in such a way that you are able to do miraculous things in our lives and impress others into coming to know you in a personal way. Help us to grasp that. Help us to apply the lessons that your spirit would have impressed upon our hearts about ourselves today that we've learned from this righteous, godly couple. And may our lives be changed from this moment forth as a result of it. For this we ask in Christ's name and all God's people say, Amen. The Lord bless you and make you a blessing for him.